I'm Colleen, and this podcast is an inside look at recovery, which I define as a lifelong journey to get out of your own way and become your own best friend. Join me for mindset upgrades that move you from worry and regret to resilience and confidence. I'll share easy strategies for how to feel better without having to make major changes. Because it's not what you do, it's who you are. Self-care is the path to recovery because our needs are not negotiable. So in this module, we're going to discuss emotions and feelings. And one of the things that has always kind of bugged me about early sobriety or recovery in general is that they say, repeat, repeat, repeat. They say, you have to feel your feelings. And what has never made sense to me is that when I was drinking, I was feeling my feelings. I was feeling intense anger and rage and frustration, and then also sometimes happiness and celebration. You know, I was in touch with my feelings. Um, So it didn't make any sense to me. What is this thing where you have to feel your feelings? I mean, I get the concept that, you know, we're numbing our feelings. For sure, I've seen that where, you know, I don't really have the coping skills to handle stress and I just reach for a drink. But it's never resonated with me of what it means really to feel the feelings because I was kind of a, a victim of my own feelings. And that is exactly what recovery is about when we talk about emotions and feeling our feelings. Up until now, as drinkers, we have used external coping mechanisms to regulate our internal environment. So if we feel stressed, we pour a drink. If we feel low and want to feel happy, we pour a drink. If we feel upset, we tell somebody that they need to change their behavior or we feel frustrated. So we start arguing about how we're, we're right and we wanna be right. Um, so we're constantly trying to change our external environment to cope with what we're feeling. And that is, that is the work that we are doing now in recovery, is learning how to regulate our emotions on the inside. And while that doesn't sound as fun, you know, I used to say that, you know, yoga and meditation um, were all that and three glasses of wine were all I needed to relax. You know, now letting go of the, the wine or the Xanax or whatever it is that I would just pop to, to change the way I feel, now it just feels really hard and also confusing because, okay, I feel yucky. Is that it? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Like, okay, I feel like shit. Like, where's my reward? Instant gratification. And I, I've never understood the end goal of why it's important to sit in the discomfort. You know, the only thing that, that did make sense, which is true, is that, you know, if, if you just react all the time, so somebody pisses you off and then you tell them off, you, you're not really in control. You, you make bad decisions and you're not giving yourself space. In yoga, we call that putting space between the stimulus and the response. And so I understood that that was important in terms of living my life, but I didn't understand really the depth of what it means and what, what the value is of, 
stopping and sitting in the muck. What's the point of that? Like, what are we getting out of that? And so, you know, I, I, that's what this module is about is helping you understand when you are in the muck and you're willing to stop and feel it. What's the process there? How do you feel your feelings? How do you make sense of them? And then what, if anything, that you do, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to just be told, well, no, you just sit and be uncomfortable. Okay. For how long? Like what, Mm, what does this look like? So that's what we're going to talk about in this in this module. So let's start with the question: What are emotions? It's hard in in some ways to even separate our emotions from our thoughts, but they are in fact two different things. Emotions are the sensations that we experience in our body. They are naturally occurring biological mechanisms of that arise in response to our thoughts and emotions it, in the big picture are messengers they're messengers that something isn't right and you know the very simple example if you're getting angry because you know, as a teacher, when I taught school, I would get really angry because so many students were asking for hall passes and it would get just ridiculous. This was back when you were allowed to write hall passes. I don't know that they do that now, but when I was teaching in the late 90s and early 2000s, I would be the cool, nice teacher and I would find myself pissed off at the end of the day because so many kids had asked for hall passes that I felt like I was being taken advantage of because I was. My emotion in response to that situation uh, was, a, was a, a signal from the inside that something is wrong. My brain was telling me that the students are assholes and they're taking advantage of me. But when I pause in that anger and really look inside, the problem was that I wasn't setting a good boundary. I was writing the whole passes. So while my brain wanted to blame the students, when I took a moment and paused and really reflected that there was an internal signal of knock, knock, hello, you just stop writing hall passes, just say no. But what I was avoiding with the saying, not saying no, is that I didn't want to be perceived as a mean teacher. I wanted to be perceived as the cool, understanding, you know, popular teacher. I guess I was going for prom queen. I'm not sure. And I did figure this out and I was a good teacher, but I would notice that ultimately I had to decide, am I willing to be uncomfortable to set the boundary for my own sanity and honestly, the good of the students as well? Or am I going to be mad at the students for asking for a hall pass that I'm perfectly willing to write? And so that's a, a superficial level one easy example that emotions are messengers from the inside and emotions are designed, they have evolved with us to, to call us to pause and to look inside, to reflect, to accept what's going on around us, to evaluate what's going on around us and ultimately decide what's out of alignment. So usually when we have, let's say a negative emotion, especially, there's a value that we hold that is not being honored. So in the hall pass situation, I honored, my value was to be a good teacher and to have a, you know, orderly, predictable class that was focused on content. 
not really to be, you know, Miss Popular Teacher. So I was not behaving in a way that underlined my values. And the messenger, the anger was there to give me a heads up. So it's really very simple and also very complicated. You know, our thoughts then create stories in our head. And, and we live in this internal environment of emotions and thoughts and stories. And it's all from coming from inside. Each of us can sit in the same situation and experience reality completely different because of our own thoughts about it and our own stories and the meanings that we attach to what other people do and to what's going on around us and to what that means to us. So our internal environment really drives everything, every aspect of our being, how we live, how we love, how we lead, how we parent, how we work, how we eat, how we move, you know, everything. It's coming. All of our behaviors are driven by what we think and then the stories that we tell ourselves. And thoughts are often perpetuated because of the emotions, but sometimes you know, the emotion, we're misinterpreting what that emotion means. And then that leads to bad decisions. That leads to us being out of alignment in our life. When we're not aware that our emotions are messengers from the inside, we're simply reacting to what's happening and we're not in control. We're victims. We become victims of circumstance. Think about it as if our life is a story, we're just a character in that story. We're not the author of the story. We're just kind of saying our lines and you said this, that makes me mad, I say this, and we're just very low level conscious of who we are and why we're here. So we can learn to manage our emotions by becoming aware of them. And each time we get that signal from inside, pausing. And in early recovery, this feels exhausting this is why our bandwidth is smaller, because we're not used to doing this. We're used to just wheeling and dealing, reacting. And if we have too much stress or it's a certain time of day, we just pour the drink and we shut down all of that awareness and just pinball throughout our life. We're not actually in control. So we, when we observe our emotions, then we can observe our thoughts. And then we can realize we are not our thoughts. We are the thinker of our thoughts. We are the author of our own story. And it's mind boggling once you realize how much of a choice you have in the reality of your life and how you perceive that reality. When you become the observer you are not controlled by base human level reactions, you know, instant gratification or trigger emotions or what other people say you just react to. When you become the observer of your thoughts and the author of your own story, everything changes. And it's really, really cool. Radical acceptance of our emotions is the cornerstone of resilience, of being able to handle anything. Because it's not just happening to us. We're co-creating our life in our environment. You know, it's not like we can just change everything. You know, it's raining on our parade. Well, we can't change the rain, but we can change how we react to the rain, how we perceive the rain to be influencing us and how it impacts us. We can choose how 
how what we what meaning we make of the rain. Um, but when we suppress and ignore our feelings, as we are we've grown accustomed to do with drinking, we we ultimately are disowning a part of ourselves because if emotions are messengers about the values that are out of alignment, when we don't listen to our emotions or we react, you know, without awareness, then we are disowning our, our true purpose in life and our true meaning. You know, for me, it was very important for me to be a good teacher. And so my behavior of writing the hall passes was grading up against that. It was in conflict. I'm not saying teachers that write hall passes are bad, but for me, that didn't align with my my desire to be the kind of teacher I wanted to be. And so it created cognitive dissonance. And ultimately I was angry, not at the students, but at myself for writing the passes. And by taking responsibility for my emotions in that situation, I was able to correct my own behavior, solve the problem, move on with my life, and teach a kick-ass chemistry lesson, which because I was a high school chemistry teacher. But one of the problems um, especially for us females, is that society has taught us to block certain emotions. We've labeled some emotions as good and some emotions as bad. And the good emotions are the confidence, stoicism, you know, no matter what happens, you're not a bitcher and a moaner and a complainer. And also toxic positivity. What is toxic positivity? It's where you need to make the best out of every given situation. You know, I'm sorry your dog just got hit, but yeah, you get a you get a puppy now. You know, it's skipping the feeling of the emotions and the processing of the emotions and forcing that you don't get to feel grief and you don't get to feel sadness. And the flip side, and this is why I say it kind of affects women more, thanks patriarchy, is that the bad emotions are really what we uh, reduce to feminine behavior, such as um, you know, feelings like shame or sadness or anxiety. We deem those emotions as irrational, as disruptive, as illogical. That's the feminine emotions. And so in our society, you know, male dominated behaviors are rewarded and female per, per, perceived female emotions are relegated to problematic. And so we kind of have gotten used to as women stuffing down the emotions and putting on a smile and just moving through life. And the problem when we think that some emotions are bad and thus we begin to avoid them or suppress them or ignore them, is that it creates a cycle where then we're feeling sad about the fact that we're sad. And we feel like there's something wrong when we're experiencing anger. I shouldn't feel angry, or I shouldn't feel grief, or I should feel more grief than I'm feeling, or I'm overwhelmed and I can't handle life. And so instead of looking underneath that emotion for what value is, we get upset about the emotion itself. And that is the work that we do as we begin to start feeling our emotions is we stop attaching meaning to our emotions and we just allow them to be and we approach them with curiosity. Why is this coming up for me? And that requires a pause. And again, in early sobriety, you know, you have to learn to crawl before you can learn to walk, before you can run. And this stopping and turning inward 
it is a practice that eventually we can walk and chew gum at the same time, but it does take practice. But we just have to remember that when we avoid our emotions or when we label them as bad, we're shooting the messenger. The, the emotions is serving a purpose and we are ignoring that purpose. So having emotional agility means that you can have troubling thoughts or troubling emotions and still manage to act in a way that aligns with your own values. So, you know, um, a situation where I feel humiliated and embarrassed, I, I don't want to suppress that emotion, um, but, you know, I may need to behave so that I'm proud of myself later. Um, you know, by not running away and not crying in the moment. But just as I shared in the video uh, from last week about pause, that emotion still exists. So we may not be able to handle it in the moment, but just like a rabbit who is running away from the lion, once the rabbit is safe, the rabbit shakes. If we feel and experience shame or humiliation or rejection in a moment, even if we are lucky enough to be able to maintain our dignity, we still have to give ourselves space later. And that's where, especially those of us that are high functioning, you know, we might have that bad day or that kick in the butt or gut situation. And then we go home and we pour a drink on it. And we never learned to sit in that negative emotion and sit and really feel like what it meant to us. We skipped that part we're operating on the assumption that the humiliation or the rejection that we felt needs to be avoided. So we use the alcohol or some other mal maladaptive coping tool to avoid the feeling. And so recovery is figuring out how to handle and tolerate those negative emotions. We can't have meaningful and purposeful lives if we can't tolerate discomfort. Nobody goes out and accomplishes change in the world or accomplishes the goals and the dreams if they have no purpose and meaning. So you might have the big house and the fancy car and the, the position at work in the C-suite that you want, but if it doesn't feel like it has meaning to you, life will feel empty and pointless. And then that's where we kind of get nihilistic and depressed in life. And it's because of that disconnect. It's because we've disconnected from the emotions that are causing us distress and we're avoiding turning inward to see the source of the distress so that maybe we can choose and behave something different. Honoring our emotions does not mean that we are controlled by our emotions. In fact, it means the exact opposite. Ignoring or disregarding our emotions doesn't make them go away. It just forces them down into our subconscious so that then our behavior is driven by our emotions, but we're not aware of how. So just like in my teaching example, okay, now I'm getting angry and I take it out in some other way. You know, I tell my class that they're a pain in the ass, although I don't think I would have used that term, but or, you know, I do something negative to my class because I'm angry, but I've not taken the opportunity to follow that message all the way down to see that it's my own behavior that I'm mad at. And then I, I create more negativity by my behavior and create more resistance. And it's just confusing. And ultimately, I'm unaware in that scenario. If I don't go inside, I'm unaware of how my emotions and my behavior are impacting my reality. 
and I'm creating negativity um, instead of positivity. Honoring our emotions does not look like I feel angry and I have a right to be angry and I've been wronged and this is wrong and you're wrong and I'm right and my anger means that I'm right. Honoring your emotions does not mean believing your emotions. It just means you're allowing them to tell you to pause. Truly honoring our emotions means we use them as data, not directives. Our emotions are just data. They're not instructions for how to behave next. In fact, they're instructions to stop and go within. So we acknowledge how we feel. So we ask ourselves why we feel that way. Why are we feeling angry? Why are we feeling humiliated? You know, what is the value or the meaning below our emotion? And it's usually something that is important to us. It's a value that's been compromised or ignored um, or a boundary that we need to set. You know, if someone's humiliating us, you know, where do we take our power back and how? Instead of feeling that humiliation and then allowing our thoughts to tell us that we suck, we're no good, and questioning who we are, that's, that's usually what happens with those negative emotions when we subconsciously allow them to control our behavior. We don't have the power to disconnect the story from the emotion, feel the emotion, and then go down into our values and meaning and figure out what's going on there. When we lack the ability to disconnect the way we feel from the story that we're thinking, we have no power to change anything. And we're destined to repeat the same cycles and patterns that are creating problems in our lives. You know, for example, um, if I'm feeling angry with my husband and the story I'm telling myself is that he's an asshole and that he doesn't listen and that he's selfish, well, then... I'm missing the opportunity to, I'm just blaming him for the way I feel. When my anger, in fact, tells me nothing about my husband, nothing. It tells me about myself. You know, um, one of the things that we, my husband and I have gotten into arguments about, we share children that are about the same age. And by children, I mean 24-year-old functioning adults. My oldest is 24. His triplets are 24. I have a 21-year-old, 18 and 16. And recently, he bought his daughters, uh, one just graduated from college, he bought them both new cars. And I was pissed. I was pissed at him because he bought his daughters new cars. And when I stopped and paused and really sat with that resentment, I found my own values were in conflict. One is I felt like that's not fair to my boys because I didn't get them new cars because I don't want to buy my 24-year-old son a car. I want him to work. He's capable of working, and I want him to stand on his own two feet and not walk through life at 24 thinking he's entitled. I mean, I had him when I was 24. You know, I had a college degree, and I had health insurance, and I owned a home at 24. I don't want to buy my son a car and, and delay his childhood even longer. So in the end, I had conflicting values. I wanted to be fair. And yet I want to raise my children with, and again, children, I can't believe it. I guess we're all like this with the adult children thing, but I didn't want that failure to launch syndrome for my boys. And I also was uncomfortable that my husband and I disagreed, but underneath that, 
is I wouldn't want my husband to tell me that I can or cannot spend money in whatever way I feel like I should for my kids. And I don't, therefore I can't do that to him. So in the end, I wasn't angry with my husband. I was uncomfortable with my own values. And when I took the time to go inward and sort that out, I'm good now. His daughters have new cars. My sons drive little pieces of shit and I feel good about it. But it took me a minute. I had to take that message and really examine what that was about. And it had nothing to do with my husband. It was all about me. Um, so another thing that I found, another example was, um, and how to use this. So I'll take it a step further. When I was in my master's program training to be a coach, you know, I really pride myself on learning and and learning the skill. Being a coach is hard. I was a teacher. Teachers tell you shit. Coaches are supposed to listen. And the first rule of coaching is to show empathy and reflect what you're hearing so that you get it right and so that they can hear. That's rule number one. I mean, if nothing else happens when we're talking, I should hopefully let you feel seen and allow you to hear your own uh, story. Um, so my mom calls me and she wants to talk about something and it's something that's bothering her. And so she tells me what's bothering her and I immediately see the story. I see exactly what is wrong. I see where she's making this about her. I see the story. So I launch right into not coaching mode, but pain in the ass daughter, I suppose. And I, I tell her, look, mom, you're telling yourself a story. It doesn't have to be that way. You can change your story. And my mother says, you know, I'm sure you're right. I really just wanted you to tell me I'm not crazy and that you see me. Oh, and I immediately felt shame and I felt embarrassment. My mother had called and she asked me to be a coach and I failed her right out of the get-go. And here I am almost done with my master's program and I fucked it up. And so instead of, you know, blaming her for being high maintenance or even blaming myself for fucking it up, I went in and I felt that embarrassment. And ultimately, I was able to then decide that that was such a great thing that happened because it was my mom and I could make it right. And it wasn't a new client that I failed. And so it was a great learning experience and I could put it to good use instead of feeding the story in my head that I'm never going to be a good coach and that I'm never going to get it. I talk too much. I'm, you know, I'm full of good advice. I'm all talk and no walk, you know, all of the stories that I could have spun out about with that failure. Instead, I just decided, thank you, emotion for coming up. Thank you for showing me where I need to do better. And I learned and I don't think I've made that mistake since. I always, you know, immediately start the reflection and the empathy and then slow down, you know, in a coaching session. So, you know, I, when we're able to step outside of our emotions, we're able to rewrite our stories. And that's what emotional intelligence gives us. It gives us the ability to become who we want to be and not just react and be victim of our circumstances and be victims of our stories, you know, the messages that we grew up with of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. It allows us to rise above and out of that. We can, once we step into our feelings, then we can step outside of the story that's creating them 
and become the authors instead of the characters. Our stories have a very valuable purpose. And so we're always going to have stories. So even though we are rewriting our stories, you know, unless we become a trans transcendent monk in a cave, you know, we're always going to have thoughts and we can use those stories to our advantage. Just, it's just important to recognize that when we have a story that's not serving us, like my story would have been, you know, I'm a bad coach and this is hard and I'm not going to get it. Or my mom's being critical of me, like whatever. Neither one of those stories were good options. So I picked a third option. I picked a story that I could grow from and use to my advantage. And so getting outside of our stories allows them to rewrite them, but it doesn't necessarily get rid of them. And stories are language. Stories are, we, we use language to create our own reality. You know, when we're young we and we begin to point to things and we socialize our children that this is a certain way and that's a boy and that's a girl, those words that have meaning, then, then we create stories in our brain based on those words. So undoing our stories also requires language. So when we are working on our emotional agility, if you will, our ability to manage our emotions in real time, we have to first show up and to feel the feeling. And so in this exercise for this module, we're going to identify, I, I think I picked about seven or eight different feelings. And I want you to work on words, like if you were describing to an alien what anxiety feels like or shame feels like, I want you to come up with the physical sensations of that word. So for me, shame feels like heat, a wave of heat. Um, it feels like there's a sinking darkness. Um, it feels, I get a prickly feeling in my ears um, or up the back of my neck. So I'm using words to explain to you what the sensation of shame feels like to me. And when we move, you know, how do we feel our feelings? Well, instead of feeling our thoughts, and, and I think that's where, you know, when I was drinking and I was telling you in the beginning that I feel like I've been feeling my feelings. No, I've been, been feeling my thoughts. So if I have anger, then I'm going with the story that my husband's an asshole or somebody's a jerk or I suck in some way. You know, I'm writing too many hall passes, but I'm not actually feeling the feelings. I'm not allowing the energy to dissipate. So when we first get that rush of anger, um, you know, if we have the space and time to not react immediately, and or maybe we do react appropriately, but we still have this anger, that energy has to be processed and we have to feel that feeling. So just like I talked about in the pause module where the lion chases the rabbit, the rabbit gets away. What does the rabbit do when it's safe? It shakes. Well, even if you're in a situation where you're able to manage your emotions, you still are going to have to process them. There's a difference between managing your behavior and processing your emotion. So when you get to that safe space, you know, shaking it off, you know, we used to, if we got really angry, we'd pour a drink on our anger. Now we might need to go take a walk or 
Um, another thing with all emotions, what we can do is just observe and identify and use words to describe the fe the feeling, the sensations that we're having. And this does a couple of things. First of all, just by tuning in and paying attention to our the sensations in our body, if those sensations are indeed messengers, think of it as a fire alarm going off. Just by tuning in, we're signaling to the brain that we're paying attention so it can shut down the alarm. Immediately that decreases the intensity. Then when we give our brain a job to do besides write that story, you know, whose fault this is and, you know, internalize our anger or project it onto somebody else. When we shift away from the, those words and that language that's creating the pain and suffering and the emotion, and we move into words that describe the sensation, our brain now has a, a different job to do. We've redirected our focus to obser observing what's going on in our body and then the task of coming up with words that describes what's going on in our body. So that is how you feel the feelings. That is how you process the emotion. So even if in the moment you have to manage your emotions, you wanna take time later to process it. You know, it's called emotional hygiene. It's like flushing the toilet when you're done. You know, you may have to carry that with you till you get to a safe space, but eventually you need to feel it. And what you will find, what I find, is that it is not the big and scary monster. It's the story that's scaring us. But the actual sensation, it's not that overwhelming. And when we take the time to feel it, and language it as what it is, it just softens our experience. And then when, you know, the more emotional we get about something, the less rational we can be. So as that emotional, as that emotion dissipates, as the, the negative energy relaxes, our rational thinking mind can come up. And then what we do is we go in and we see what values we have that are either in conflict or that we're ignoring. You know, we might have two values that are competing with each other, or we might be ignoring something that's meaningful and important to us. And that emotion has come up to signal, hey, you know, integrity is not being being honored here, or my financial principles are not being honored, or my time management principles are not being honored, or whatever it is. When we're when we've calmed down we can look within to see the value that we need to honor and create a new story to make sure that that value is included. So two things with emotional agility, show up and feel it and name it. And then two, step outside of the thoughts and the stories going into our values and then rewriting our story. Um, what are our options? You know, it's not what do we want to do next, but how would the person we want to be behave? And asking that question allows us to go way up to the big picture and allows us to take action that ultimately leads to positive results instead of negative results. And you know, something that I wanna share that I just find interesting is when we observe our feelings, you know, think about when we observe our feelings, it does change the way we feel. And it does, it does suck the negative charge out of it. And why is that? How does that work? You've heard of the observer effect, 
in science. Anything you observe, the, sh the sheer act of observation changes the system. Think about, you know, you're checking the tire pressure. In order to do that, some of the, the air comes out. Um, if you shine a light on something, it changes it. It creates a reflection of the light. It creates shadows. Um, so observing things change, change them. Observing things changes our behavior. All animals act differently when they know they're being watched. Zoo animals behave differently. They become hypervigilant when there's um, you know, visitors watching what they're doing, or they only do something, you know, they behave in certain mannerisms because they want food when they know they're being watched. Um, teenage boys take more risks when people are watching them and when they're in a group than when they do alone. When I was raising my children, there was some show on TV. I don't know if it was called The Nanny, but it, it was a nanny and they, they would record so I pretended there was a nanny cam on me at all times, especially like during the witching hour, as I called it between four and six, I would literally pretend that there was a camera. And so I needed to behave so that, you know, my best self was on TV. And that was a little, you know, coping mechanism that I used to control my behavior was kind of step out of my behavior and observe it. So the act of observing my own behavior changed my behavior. There's also something called the actor-observer bias, and this is fascinating. We, we, what it says is that we attribute the behavior of others to their innate personality, their internal, who they are as a person. And we attribute our own behaviors to external factors. So if my husband is late, it's because he's an inconsiderate asshole. If I'm late, it's because there was traffic and I got tied up somewhere. And when we begin to observe our own emotions, that story that we tell ourselves that the way we're feeling is because of external things begins to soften. And we get, begin to see that maybe our behavior is driven by the way we feel it's driven by the way we think. And if we think something different, we can come up with a different story. So it's very important as we're healing and moving through recovery to, to notice that, you know, attributing things to other people and attaching meaning to their behavior that isn't there. And that doing the same thing to ourselves, attaching meaning that may or may not be there. That's the key to freedom. Disconnecting our stories from our emotion is the purpose of feeling our emotions and learning that our emotions are tools. They are gifts, if you will, even the bad ones. And to stop fearing, to recognize that when we fear something or we're struggling with something, it's not usually the outcome that we're fearing. It's the way we're going to feel about the outcome. And this um, resonates with the cliche that it is the fear of the problem, not the actual problem that is the problem. It's, it's our fear of it. When um, my first husband and I were in our 20s, we started a business um, and I stayed home. I had quit my teaching job and he had gone through an MBA program and we came up with a business plan and this was 1999 and we were like, we're in our 20s. Let's do it. Let's go for it. And in order to make that happen, we had to borrow against our own home. Well, we spent three years 
you know, if you've ever owned a small business, you know, it's feast or famine. And we spent three years riding a ridiculous roller coaster. And then something changed with the laws that, you know, the, there had been a law that we had a million dollars worth of business on the table. I was wearing leather pants in Vegas, you know, pouring champagne all over everything. And then the law changed and we had hired two employees and had all this stuff. You know where this is going. We ended up having to declare bankruptcy and not only bankruptcy, but we ended up having to foreclose on our home, which was, which was so scary having two little boys and facing that. But what I remember very distinctly was that the moment we decided to give up and stop fighting, we realized we couldn't keep it going. We couldn't pay our employees and we couldn't manage the debt payments that we had incurred because the business that we thought we had was gone. Um, the best day ever was the day we decided to declare bankruptcy and to just let it all go. And what came later was uh, an outpouring from friends and family stepping up to help us. And the, the humiliating part was before knowing that that was coming and the meaning that we were attaching to the action that we ultimately had to take. In reality, in hindsight, that, those were the best years of our marriage um, because we really got grounded in our true values and not cheat. We made the best of it. You know, it would have been great to make a million bucks and, you know, who knows what all could have happened, but that's not the way it played out. And what we both learned at that time was it was our fear. You know, when we finally just said, this isn't working and gave ourselves permission to walk into that failure and to feel that failure, it was extremely liberating. And so I encourage you to just think about any issues in your life and ask yourself what it is that you're fearing and understand that that's an inside issue. You're not fearing so much, you know, the external consequence. You're fearing your judgment and the meaning that you're attaching to that. And that's why it's so important to feel these feelings and to go through this process of, you know, labeling and feeling the sensation and letting it dissipate because it takes the power out of them. It completely discharges that emotion and then allows you to create a new story. And we did a lot of thought work at the time and had a very healthy attitude going into that. And very similar to your experience in sobriety, I know a couple of you right now, fair enough, will roll your eyes at the, my continued saying that it's harder to, the hardest part of quitting drinking is making the decision to quit drinking because you fear. And of course, quitting drinking is hard. But I do maintain that that's one of the hardest parts is not knowing and uncertainty. And when you're still drinking, you don't have access to these coping tools. So how am I going to deal with the fear and uncertainty of sobriety if I can't drink through it? And so just recognizing that it's not the outcome you fear so much as the fear itself and that learning you can set with anything, you know, and doing the practice like in this uh, module of starting with a non-emotionally charged situation. I'm just asking you, what does it feel like when you feel happy? Really doing some of that work will make it easier in real time when you come across feelings that you have to process. 
The other thing, as I mentioned with language, it's very important, important to disassociate, remove yourself from the language of owning your feelings. So what I mean by that is not saying I am stressed, but saying I am noticing that I'm feeling stressed. You know, a couple of times just in the last few days, I've worked with clients who are dealing with depression or apathy and their, their belief is that I'm, I'm depressed and I'm apathetic and I can't handle this. And then when we dig in, they are experiencing depression and apathy, but not 24 seven. There are moments of maybe it's just five minutes here or there where something goes well, or their dopamine fires because they eat something that they like, or they step outside, or they, somebody has a joke and they smile. You're not depressed 24 seven. There might be an overwhelming amount of depression and it has to be dealt with. But just distancing yourself, using language to change the story instead of I am depressed, that makes it permanent. That makes it feel like this is never going to end. And that's another problem that we, the reason we fear our feelings is because we have this issue or we have this belief that in the moment that there's nothing beyond this. Even though we can look back on our life and feel, see times of fear and see times of depression and see times of anxiety and see times of grief, those past, when we are in, you know, an intense emotional experience, we forget that it's going to pass. And so taking the time to feel that it's not that bad is important, but also taking the language and the power back of creating a reality and saying, I am noticing that I'm feeling depressed a lot. Please help. That's fair. But don't catch yourself when you find yourself saying, I am depressed or I am apathetic because no, you're not. You're a person who's experiencing depression, who's experiencing apathy, and you're developing the coping tools to move through those. And that is power. And then one step beyond that is, okay, I am noticing I am feeling a certain way. And the story I am telling myself is, I saw that on a Brene Brown podcast, or it was her Netflix special, which is fabulous. I don't remember what it was called, but she has a, a special on Netflix. Go watch it if you, if you can. Um, it's so good. I've watched it several times, but she was in a fight with her husband and they used that language together. You know, the story I'm telling myself is that you're a selfish asshole who doesn't care about me. And it just creates a meta thought about the thought. It creates space. It allows you to move out of that story. And again, not be the character in the story, but be the author of the story. The story I'm telling myself is not making me happy. The story I'm telling myself is not serving me. How do I change that? And so using language to take back your power is, um, again, invaluable. So there are three steps to the reflection exercise in this module. And the first one is to practice describing the sensations, the physical sensations of your emotions. The second is to name as specifically as possible the emotion. And you can use multiple words. So, you know, instead of saying stress, you might feel hurt and embarrassed and devastated or something like that. Just getting it as specific as you can. Um, for this situation, and then putting it into a context. So the story I'm telling myself is, 
and then go ahead and move into that. And then the third step, you know, and this isn't always appropriate because sometimes it's so easy, but in general, um, with complex situations that are ongoing, moving then into what value is being ignored or compromised or two values in conflict, identifying the values that are creating the smoke signal that is sending the alarm with the emotions is very important. And then after you've identified the value, asking yourself the question, what courageous action do I need to take? Am I ready? It's okay if you're not ready, but just beginning to see how you might move forward. That's what this is all about. So I encourage you to spend a little bit of time with this. Shouldn't be too time time consuming. And then move into practice of feeling the feels to heal the deal and process the emotion and all of that good stuff. Good luck. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please take the time to rate and review the show so that other people can find it. I really appreciate it. And check out the show notes for any resources I've mentioned, including links to follow me on Instagram and join my private Facebook group where I connect with my tribe every day. I love it in there and we have so much fun. And finally, if you're ready to redefine sobriety so that you can feel excited about quitting drinking, follow the link to my 10 days to spontaneous sobriety course where I will help you eliminate, eradicate, obliterate, cancel your desire to drink because looking and feeling your best is addictive too. I'll see you soon.